Today's text is Luke 7, 36 through 50, which is on page 811, the very last little bit, uh, and page 812 if you have one of the church Bibles this morning. So let's start by reading verses 36 through 39, and we'll see how two people react to Jesus. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In this first section, Luke demonstrates that the reaction we have to Jesus will reveal what we believe both about our own identity and the identity of Jesus. In verse 36, we're given the identities of two people who interact with Jesus. One of the Pharisees and a woman of the city who was a sinner. And Luke is communicating something critical here. Not simply who the characters are in the story, but their most significant personal identity. What they believe about themselves will determine how they respond to the person of Jesus. So let's start with the core identity of the Pharisee. We know that both Luke and Jesus, as we see later, know the name of this man. But by using his title right here at the outset, Luke is telling us that above all, this man's identity is as a Pharisee. And this fact will drive everything that he thinks and says to Jesus. So, Who were the Pharisees in the Jewish context? Well, the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were completely devoted to the the Levitical laws and the religious traditions. The word uh, Pharisee in Hebrew implies a person who separates himself or keeps away from persons or things impure in order to attain the degree of holiness And righteousness that is a requirement to commune with a holy God. And so his reaction to Jesus and this woman reveals what he believes about himself and Jesus. And that reaction, friends, is one of doubt. In verse 39. To him, Jesus cannot be a prophet. Because if he knew that this woman was sinful, then he would have done what every good Pharisee would do which is to withdraw, to separate himself from her. He would know that he was coming in contact with something impure, that he was being defiled by her touch. And if he were truly a holy person who really knew what she was about, he would never allow that. So as far as this Pharisee is concerned, he is the one closest to God in that room. He's certainly more holy than this woman, than this sinner. 
And if this guy, Jesus, is going to let her touch him, then he can't be very much better himself. What a contrast that is to the identity of the woman. What is her core identity? She is a sinner. And this fact will drive everything that she thinks and she does to Jesus. We're not even given a name for this woman. In this passage of Luke, her only identity is simply sinner. And everyone knows it. The Pharisee knows it. Jesus, we'll see in the next couple of verses, knows it. And most importantly, the woman herself knows it. Her actions in verse 38 make us very uncomfortable, don't they? They would have been even more shocking in the context of that culture. Even shameful what she does. Her mere presence in the the room of men in that culture would have bespoken on her part a major lack of decorum or even of self-respect if she's standing there in that place with those men. To place her head so low at someone's feet was another shameful act. And most of all, to expose her unbound hair in the presence of strangers was scandalous. Let alone to use it in such a shameful way to dry a man's feet. So unlike the Pharisee whose reaction to Jesus was one of doubt, this woman's reaction to Jesus is one of the most extravagant, even embarrassing adoration of Jesus. I remember as a teen taking a trip uh, and having a newlywed couple there as chaperones. And they couldn't stop their public displays of affection. And as a teenager, I was so uncomfortable. <laughs> it was even at completely inappropriate times, like at the gas station or waiting in line uh, of a, at a fast food place. Uh, they even like jumped out of their car one time at a red light that like they both had cars. They jumped out, ran and kissed each other and then ran back to their cars at the red light. And I'm not recommending this behavior as chaperones of teens. Uh, please don't do that. Uh, but my point is that no one who witnessed the display of this woman there in Luke 37 and 38 could have possibly taken it well. Except apparently for Jesus. Because he knows something that no one else there knows. He knows what motivates this display. Friends, what could motivate behavior like this woman's? What could drive a person to so be so completely overwhelmed that they cross all boundaries of good sense, even behaving embarrassingly or shamefully? The answer is love. And that's just where Jesus takes the conversation next. As he tells a parable that draws a crucial comparison. A contrast between this sinful woman of the city and this Pharisee. Read Luke 7, 40 through 47 and we'll get to see why these two people react the way that they do to Jesus.
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I entered, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In this section, Jesus teaches that the greatest love will flow from those with the greatest need for forgiveness and the faith to receive it. In verse 41, Jesus first compares himself to a compassionate moneylender, a man to whom debt is owed, but who has both the authority and the compassion necessary to cancel that debt. And we've seen Jesus demonstrate this character again and again throughout the book of Luke. And in verse 47, Jesus holds up this unnamed woman's staggering displays of love as proof that she has been forgiven an equally staggering debt of sin. Her tears on his feet, her ceaseless kisses, her precious anointment are the testimony that she recognizes her debt and the magnitude of what she has been forgiven. But what of the Pharisee? How does his response to Jesus demonstrate what he has been forgiven? Well, first of all, in verse 40, Jesus addresses the Pharisee by name. He calls him Simon. He appeals to the man, not the, the person, not just the identity that he has assumed of a Pharisee. But true to form, despite Simon's academic understanding of this parable, his understanding of his own identity is tragically twisted. In verse 47, Jesus says of the woman, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. But friends, Simon doesn't love little. He loves none, no water, no kisses, no anointment. And this breaks my heart. No love. Simon is so convinced 
of his own righteousness, his own sufficiency, that he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he is a debtor at all. And so Simon's utter lack of love isn't a sign, as he may have assumed, that he only had a small debt to be canceled. He has no love for Jesus because he has not been forgiven his debt at all because he doesn't even recognize that he's in debt. This is just what Jesus warned of in Luke 7.30, that the Pharisees rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John the Baptist in the baptism of repentance. The greatest love will flow from those with the greatest need for forgiveness and the faith to receive it. And this, friend, should be sobering for all of us. How much of a debt have you been forgiven? You can tell by how much you love Jesus. Do you love him as much as the woman in these verses? Do you love him so much that you are willing to endure shame as you express your love for him? Do you love him so much that you desire to know him more intimately than any other person? Do you love him so much that you joyfully pour out your most precious possessions, spending them in the worship of him? And friends, I'm ashamed to say that for me, this degree of passion is rarely true. And if we love him, if you and I love him any less than this, let me assure you that it is not because we have been forgiven little. We have been forgiven much. I have been forgiven so much. And the only reason that I often love him less than he deserves is because that I either forget or I ignore the true weight of the debt that I have been forgiven. Or for those of you who maybe, like Simon, have no love for Jesus. Those of you who don't see why Christians make such a big deal about this teacher. Those of you who think that you're actually doing pretty okay. You're holding yourself together. Please know that Jesus died so that he could pay for your debt. He took the unimaginable weight of your sin on himself. And if you let him for just one second show you the balance of what he paid, then the only response is to weep and to worship at his feet. And then, friends, all of us, like this sinful woman, will love him with a burning love, so hot that nothing else matters. Because of this love, we will gladly pour out our most prized possessions at his feet. For me, this is often my time. I will joyfully spend it serving the family of God. Because of this love, we will not fear the shame of being known publicly as a sinner. For me, I try to great, gratefully confess my sin to the elders here at this church. 
trusting that Jesus has paid my debt. Because of this love, we will serve in all places, both lowly and high. For me, I'm signing up to join in the nursery. I've been convicted of that this week. So, Tom, look for my email. (laughs) We will love Jesus. And it will consume everything that we are and that we do. And Jesus calls us to this deep and abiding love, not so that we can earn his forgiveness, but as a joyful expression of the fact that we are aware of the degree to which we have been forgiven. Remember that the main point of this section of Luke, which is on your outlines, says that Jesus offers salvation through faith. Without this faith in him, there can be no salvation. Not because he's unwilling to cancel our debt if we ask him, but because we refuse to admit our identity as debtors and to repent. This is the salvation that Jesus offers to all sinners, to you and to me. Salvation through faith. And that, friends, is where this chapter of Luke ends and where we must end with the understanding of faith. So let's look at your last section, the last three verses of Luke, and we'll see just how we react to Jesus. Sorry, see just how Jesus reacts to us and why. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This final section captures the response of a holy God to our faith in him. Peace. Jesus accomplishes peace between sinners and God through his own love and authority to forgive sins. Those simple words in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. It's full of so much power and purpose that it's hard to even understand, hard to even fathom. And in fact, the others around the table ask this important question. Who is this? This is a good question. The fundamental question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? And there is only one person there in that room with Jesus who knows the answer. The sinful woman of the city. Jesus says to her in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But what is her faith? She's literally not said a single word throughout the entirety of this story. She hasn't prayed a prayer. She hasn't made a verbal confession. But she has made a confession. She has prayed a prayer. Not with her lips, but with her heart. 
Because she knows two things. She knows first that she is a sinner. And second, that Jesus has the authority to forgive her and the desire to do so. That is faith. Her love and her actions demonstrate this fact. They bear testimony to the faith that she has in the person of Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus, and that faith in Jesus, is what saves her. Friends, she entered that room a sinful woman of the city. But she leaves it as a purified citizen of the kingdom of God. She's at peace. She's no longer at war with a holy God because of her sin. She's at peace. And that, friends, is the power of faith. Recognizing who Jesus is and admitting who you are, a sinner in need of grace. That's all that is necessary for the God of all love and compassion to exercise his authority and to shift your immense debt to the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And it's that love, his love, that we trust and that we depend on with every fiber of our souls. Because Jesus is the compassionate moneylender. And we are debtors with a great debt that we could never pay. But he is willing to forgive it. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I come before you this morning uh, humbled by uh, your words spoken here. Lord, I confess how uh, I have failed to recognize so often that that debt that I owe. God, this week, Lord, um, just remind us of how magnificent your love is. uh, That you would change our identity uh, of sinner to saint. Lord, of, of condemned to forgiven. And that's only possible through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for these words uh, and for this morning that we can know your love in a deeper way. And may we love you in such passionate ways, God, that we're never the same. Amen.